Welcome to All About Campion, an introduction to loving the films of Jane Campion. I'm Ingo Kang, a critic at the Washington Post, and with me, as always, is my co-host Daniel Schrader, a podcast producer at Slate. Hey, Ingo. Last time we went deep into what Daniel rather chaotically concluded was Jane Campion's best film, Holy Smoke. Today, we are going to be jumping ahead four years to 2003's In the Cut, an erotic thriller and serial killer mystery that was, I think I'm saying pretty accurately, eviscerated upon release. But I think uh, a film that has been somewhat recuperated in recent years. And we are so happy to have for this discussion, screenwriter April Wolf. Hi, April. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) it's me yay welcome so so what i remember about the initial release of in the cut and maybe these are your recollections too april is that the press release was really dominated by meg ryan's failed pivot from romantic comedies into quote-unquote more serious fare in the cut came out five years after you've got mail probably the last of ryan's rom-com reign of the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, critics and journalists breathlessly noted Ryan's brown hair and her nudity, which was assumed at the time to be some attempt at reviving career, which doesn't even make sense to me. Yeah. In addition to Ryan, the film co-stars Jennifer Jason Lee as her, what I think we called back then, like nymphomaniac half-sister. Mark Ruffalo as a cop investigating a serial killer mutilating women's bodies. And Kevin Bacon as a guy that Meg Ryan's character, Franny, has slept with twice and who will not leave her alone. And who's apparently uncredited, according to uh, IMDb. Hilarious. (laughs) Uh, The film is adapted from Susanna Moore's novel, though, as we will discuss, Campion changed enough details that Moore later said that the film is more the director's story than hers. Nicole Kidman, who starred in Campion's Portrait of a Lady, initially optioned the book to star in the film adaptation, but she had to drop out because she was going through a little divorce with a rather famous person. Who? <laughs> and is listed as producer only. Uh, Ryan recalls Campion saying of the film, we are going to kill romance and give birth to love, which I feel like is a very Campion thing to say. In the Cut was Campion's first film to be shot entirely in the U.S., mostly in New York's Lower East Side and Tribeca neighborhoods. And actually, a lot of it reminded me of Sex and the City, uh, which is also about quote-unquote liberated women in their 30s searching for love and finding mostly only dick. Um, and I think neither of you have actually seen Sex and the City, but I will force you guys to talk about it, or I will force you guys to listen to me talk about it anyway. I've seen both movies, and that's it. Tragic. <laughs> so, Daniel, please give us a quick summary of In the Cut. All right. Uh, well, it'll be quick in that I'll read it fast, but... Uh, <laughs> 
In the Cut opens on sisters Franny, played by Meg Ryan, and Pauline, played by Jennifer Jason Lee, waking up together in Franny's apartment. They part ways as Franny heads to a bar to meet up with a student in her English class so she can mine his knowledge of street slang, because she is apparently writing Urban Dictionary. <laughs> While in the bar, she goes to the bathroom and witnesses a shadowy figure with a spade tattoo on his wrist get a blowjob from a woman with blue nails. The next day, she is in English class teaching about the book To the Lighthouse, a definitely not significant image viewers should not be paying attention to. When she gets home, she meets Detective Malloy, played by Mark Ruffalo, who is looking into the death of a woman last seen at the same bar where Franny met her student. She also meets his partner, Detective Rodriguez, played by Nick Dimitri. After a few days of increasingly intimate interactions with Malloy, Franny is mugged on her way home one night and seeks out Malloy for comfort. They have sex, and we see Mark Ruffalo's dick. Thank you for that detail. Always. Uh, the next day at a coffee shop, Franny is telling her sister Pauline about the night with the detective when they are interrupted by John Graham, played by Kevin Bacon, a creepy medical student who's obsessed with Franny and won't leave her alone. Later, another murder happens, this time at a laundromat. Police suspect it's the same killer. Franny and Malloy drive out to the woods and have a weird intimate date together where he teaches her to use a gun. Again, not foreshadowing. Later, Franny goes to Pauline's apartment to discover she has been murdered now, too, and Franny begins to suspect Malloy is the murderer. He shows up at her apartment and they have sex. Malloy says the title of the film, and then she (laughs) cuffs him to the radiator and runs to the safety of his partner, Detective Rodriguez, who drives her out to a lighthouse, remember that, and attempts to murder her because, spoiler alert, he is the killer. She shoots him and returns home, curling up next to a still-cuffed Malloy on a floor presumably soaked in piss. (laughs) And that is in the (laughs) I feel like that's like a pretty salty summary for you. I was having fun with it. <laughs> <laughs> I rewatched it this morning. I needed to entertain myself somehow. <laughs> so, April, uh, we asked you to be on the podcast and then to pick whichever film that you wanted. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, Sweet- Sweetie was taken. And so yeah. you picked this one. Why? Well, I mean, obviously, Sweetie Sweetie is my favorite because I love movies that push you to an inevitable, awful end (laughs) that you can't stop. But In the Cut is a second favorite. I actually wrote about this movie in the Rotten Tomatoes book, Rotten Movies. We love to defend it. Oh, Um, wow. So I'd been thinking about it for the past few years um, because of that. But, uh, you know, it kind of sadly has a 30 something rating on Rotten Tomatoes. But I I picked it because first off, I love thrillers. I love, you know, psychosexual thrillers, um, especially of that era. And this one is so different from the rest of those, despite the fact that it's like the source material and and those things are, um, you know, uh, have the kind of plot that you would expect of these things. But I, in my head, I keep imagining like, you know, how would this be if Verhoeven got a hold of the source material? You know, like mm. the, in the way that like Campion didn't kind of dilute any of her style for this. Um, it is so, so specifically her in a way that no one else could have done. Um, and, and I think the, the more that I think about it and the more that I watch it, the more I appreciate it because the text is actually quite dense and there's so much going on in terms of, um, the, the kind of artistry of, uh, production design and, and cinematography and, um, uh, even, um, wardrobe 
that sometimes I can get a little bit distracted by some of these things. And so I miss some of the details and some of the dialogue. And then when I tune in again, um, if I watch it, you know, uh, subsequent times, I, I always come away with something new, like a, a different idea. Cause like, honestly, the first time that I watched it, um, my takeaway when I thought about it, like a year later was like, I really couldn't remember some of the things that happened. Yeah. Um, and but I w- remembered was the kind of sense that I had of it. So I, I I never lose that kind of feeling or emotion. And so much of that has to do with um, the color palette that she's using and the cinematography with the color palette, uh, and also these these textures because there's so many kind of intimate close ups in a handheld, um, and there's a lot of um, production design. There's a lot of um, pieces of uh, either props or scenery that are in the foreground and blurred. So there's almost like a, a kind of, it's, it's an effect of old timey movies of having Vaseline on the outside of the lens, but instead it's having these, these um, pieces of the production design out of focus and kind of obscuring parts of the frame. And these are things that like I can remember, but sometimes I can't even remember the plot which is weird because this is such a plot heavy movie, but I, but that's what sets it apart for me from all of these other thrillers. It's also like a really simple plot too, like in the sense like you can sort of summarize the plot in like one sentence. Yeah. Um, but I, it's really funny that you say that because I think I saw this movie like a few years after release and I couldn't remember anything about it either. Like I had like two very vivid memories of like two particular scenes in the movie and then the rest of it was like very gone from like my consciousness Mm -hmm. um you said that you found this movie like very campion-esque and i think that like on the one hand that's true and then on the other hand there's a sort of like wooziness to the look Mm -hmm. of the film that like is actually quite different for her and so i wanted to get your sense of like what you found to be so campion-esque about in the cut well, I think it's the difference is there's there's a certain kind of clarity in some of the images that she has in her other work, you know, and which I know runs counter to what I'm talking about when there's just like, um, you know, obscuring certain parts of the frame and, and that kind of look. But if you look at her films that uh, have kind of dream states in them, it, it is exactly this look. If you mm-hmm. look at Top of the Lake and the dreamscape scenes and that um the the style similarities are all there it's just that what she did is she made this entire film a kind of dream state so it's like she has all of that it's already in her kind of arsenal of how she directs film it's just that she did an entire movie like that um which i found pretty fascinating because at first i wasn't sure if it kind of fit into the the you know, the oeuvre or whatever that she has, but it's all there. And in fact, I think that you can see it, you can see a refined version of it in her later films. So I'm really excited. I haven't seen The Power of the Dog, but I'm really excited to see if she employs any of those techniques. Um, cause I know that she has the clarity and the crisp vision, but I've seen stills of, um, uh, Kristen Dunst and, um, and I, I feel like I'm getting like some of those vibes because there's there's like dim lighting and some of those things. And I'm, I'm very excited to see, see if she uses any of those again. Hmm. I feel like one moment that I felt like I really saw Jane Campion's 
campiness was uh, a moment that I was reminded of from the piano, which is um, when when Meg Ryan's character Franny is like recounting her. Uh, recounting the story of her mother and father's meeting and uh, the kind of like fairy tale quality of it. And it's very similar to the story that uh, the daughter tells in the piano. And there's Mm -hmm. this like, there's a dream sense to that, like uh, sepia tone kind of ice skating look that is very like, not of this world in a way that the weird one moment in the like retelling of Flora's parents meeting is like the shot of the like guy on fire. That's like a cartoon drawing or whatever. And so it's mm-hmm. like there's both these like moments of like childish and then adult uh, fantasization about like what your parents were or who, the, how they met and things like that. So it was just like a refinement of even that imagery. Yeah, I think what's really interesting about this movie, um, especially when we're comparing it to that, is that I think with the piano and you, like the like imagined story of like how her parents came to be from the perspective of Flora, there's a sense that like we are given these uh, really like beautiful, really fantastical narratives about what romance can look like. And uh, there's sort of, like, the dramatic irony of, like, us knowing that, like, it's probably all really fake. And I think, like, that uh, disjunct between the fantasy version and, like, what we know, uh, like, is basically, like, impossible is sort of, like, what is part of, like, the process that Franny goes through here, where she, at the beginning of the movie, or toward the beginning, recounts a story to her half-sister, and then later on, we well, and even have when her... she recounts it, she says like, or at least that's how she told it. Yeah, but I think like it takes it further from the bear, where she has that dream like toward the end of the movie, where she imagines like her father like basically chopping her mom up into like pieces, like with his ice skates, disarticulating her, <laughs> and. I think so much about this, like, movie is sort of about, like, the disillusionment with romance. And I, yeah, like, I found, like, that part of the movie, like, really interesting. I think to sort of take a step back and, like, talk about the movie in, like, a really more basic way. I found this movie, like, so interesting. And yet I feel like if I had to say whether it's, like, a good movie or, like, a bad movie, I'm probably part of, like, that 30% rating where I'm, like, I don't think this is, like, a quote-unquote good movie, but it's also, like, an endlessly interesting one. I think that, like, there's, like, parts of it where the pacing really, like, feels laggy and there's, like, a sort of lack of forward momentum because you don't get, like, the constant thrum of, like, who is the killer and, like, that, like, momentum that you sort of need to, like, feel invested in the story. But on the other hand, I feel like this movie is really prescient in a lot of ways, especially for entertainment, to like, right now. And I feel like uh, that's one of the ways that, like, Jane Campion feels so influential, even working largely outside of, like, the Hollywood system, to, like, what kinds of stories Hollywood tells now. I think the thing that, like, I got the most out of this movie is that it is largely a story about these women who are presumed to be liberated and sort of, like, 
want sexual experimentation and want、uh, sexual liberation, and yet they are living in this city that is like constantly teeming with violence against women. And basically, every character, every male character with a name in this movie is like someone who is potentially a killer. And so you have this like juxtaposition of like women sort of like wanting a kind of sexual emancipation, and then also contending with like the reality that like dating and sleeping around and just like existing in the world like as like a woman surrounded by men. Basically means like you have to be paranoid about like who might be the next like man who tries to kill you. Yeah. Well, I think this is one of the things that I'm saying in terms of、um, liking this movie. The more I watch it,、um, uh, is has a lot to do with what you're talking about in terms of pacing, and you know these、uh, these ways in which it feels like maybe the narrative has dropped the the kind of mystery. Because I think that it never drops the mystery. It's just that she obscures everything, and the same way that she's obscuring things in the frame, she's thematically obscuring other stuff.、Um, and because the biggest clues are are dropped into the dialogue, just randomly, and they're like there's there's not like a lot of attention paid to them,、um, which is interesting because it's a misdirection because the cinematography is moving, it's roving. And it's and it's often trying to it's like mimicking an eye and it's trying to collect clues, but the clues are often wrong. And then what you need to be doing is paying attention, like listening to someone. And we're not and we're not listening because we're too distracted by everything else. And the thing is that like if you are listening to it, you know I don't know how like you know spoilers or whatever, but like if you're you listening, you're gonna know in the first conversation with the real killer that it's him. If you're actually listening, and the way that his friend defends him and says he wasn't going to kill her, and it's like there's, if you are listening and paying attention and like not trying to your eye trying to rove and see what else is there and trying to put pieces together, like it's it's all there within that first conversation and that first meeting.、Um, so I really like listening to that and trying to like fight my urge to like try to you know visually. Put the pieces together when I watch it again because I'm like, it, you know, it's it's just that we're so inside this woman's head and she doesn't know what to look at. So we, in turn, don't know what to look at or don't know what piece of information should be important. But we're like collecting all of the information and then it just, you know, kind of falls into place later on. I I think also. Wait, can I say one thing in response to what you were saying? Yeah. Um, I think that is actually like one of like the. Like subversions of the serial killer mystery genre that I think was like less recognized at the time, and perhaps like now is easier to see. Like most, a lot of sort of like murder procedurals are from the、mm-hmm. point of view of like the cop, and basically here, like cops are the enemy. <laughs> yeah,、uh, it's, in some ways, it's like a very like a cab like movie. I mean, like the cops here, like are. Like a the villain, and B like protectors of the villain, and、mm-hmm. C like someone who is like not even the savior, right? Like in the end, Franny saves herself, and so、yeah. even though she's sort of like drawn to Mark Ruffalo's like I don't know like 
masculinity, his like like rough masculinity. Like ultimately, the point is that like the cops are useless, like in this particular genre. And I think like again, that's something that's like a lot easier to see now, especially in like a period where we have a lot more skepticism toward the cops, or maybe I'm just like speaking for myself because one of the two like images I really remember from the movie seeing it for the first time 20 years ago is that there's like a scene where Mark Ruffalo comes into like basically like asks her can I ask her some questions there's been like a murder and like pieces of a woman's body parts have been found in your backyard and she's like how do I know you're really a cop like tell me your badge number so I can like call the police department Mm-hmm. to make sure you actually are a cop. And I remember being really shocked by that scene because it did not occur to me when I was, like, a teenager or whatever that, I don't know, that, like, someone would require that type of vetting. Um. So, anyway. Hey, um, Cab. Yeah. Jane sure. Dan- Daniel, why did why did you put this at the top of, of the list? Like, what, are you interested in, in the mystery or? Oh, no, I actually didn't care for this. You didn't know. Um, okay. <laughs> I will say. Uh, I okay. So I feel like I was watching Jane Campion as a Lifetime movie. Oh, like that's what this movie felt like in some ways, and maybe it's because I've been listening to a podcast about Lifetime movies. But also, it's just like it. Like this entire movie was red herrings after red herrings after red herrings, where it's like everything is a misdirect, nothing is true. Uh, who am I supposed to be looking at? I'm supposed to like, but then also because everybody's so suspicious, it's like, oh well, it can't be that person because it's like too obvious that it's that person. It can't be that person because it's too obvious that it's that person, which is like a very Lifetime movie type of thing. It feels like so. Um, I mean, I. I like parts of this movie. I think it'd be great if it were an hour 30, uh, but Jane Campion loves a two-hour runtime. So um, we are given, I think, some really interesting longer uh, scenes that I do like, but also that it really just drags. Where like There are so many points where I'm just like, do we need this scene? Can we just edit this out? But uh, that's just how I felt about it. So, um, But I'm, I'm an idiot, so I'm probably wrong. No, I mean, that's a, this is such a divisive movie. And that's, I'm just a big fan of divisive movies in general, because I, I, I like the things that kind of grate on people. <laughs> which <laughs> Historically, it's been my thing. I'm like very interested in like, is that why we're friends? Because maybe it's just like, I call it like my they shoot horses, don't they like mind where I'm just like, yeah, make it make it just like harrowing for me sometimes. Like I, I, I enjoy that. I, I, I think to one of the things that I like about this is just the characterizations of these, these two women, these sisters, because, um, it's just, it's interesting how they're shot and it's interesting how they talk to one another. And it feels really truthful in certain ways because there's these two sisters and the music too. Like if, when you open up with K Sarah, Sarah, um, you're doing a, a few different things. Because that, that song has a cinematic history that is, you know, if, if it weren't already used as like a Ad slow, nauseam. like a slow, sad version in the original that Doris Day did for The Man Who Knew Too Much, you know, it's one of, it's, it's kind of like how we always like slow down pop music now for the trailers, but it was already done. Like when the first time it was used, it was like, you know, saying is a joyful thing and, uh, and the man who knew too much. And then it's kind of done. It's like slow, sad, different version. Like it's got, it's got so many different shades to it of 
the meaning. And it's basically like futility and fatality. Like there is nothing that you can do. You can try, but you can't escape this. Like, and to me, I think that really encapsulates that song, encapsulates Meg Ryan's character of this person who kind of drifts along. And the difference is that her sister like does things. She like goes after people. She like, she's like, she picks up somebody else's dry cleaning. Yeah. She's like, she's like the (laughs) other end of the spectrum of just like, you know, like manic energy. Like if I want something, I go out and get it. And then when you hear them talking, there's uh, a song um, performed by Annie Lennox, uh, Bob Marley song. It's called Waiting in Vain. And it's another thing of just like every song on the soundtrack is like telling you um, if you're if you're listening, like where she's at and what her desire levels are, because she starts singing along with it where she's like, I don't want to wait in vain. And then she gets this charm bracelet and it's it's kind of like a goal set for her, you know, like an almost like an advent calendar of just like one thing after another. And then it's just like, am I just going to wait in vain? Am I going to do something? So it's kind of like. The last time I watched it, I thought it was more of like an awakening of a woman into going after what she wants in life than just a murder story. Like that's that was the thing that that became really interesting to me is like um, that trajectory. But I, I think the music, despite the fact that it's like not my favorite songs or anything, I think it really works for these characters and kind of telling you who they are and what their um, what their psyche is like in that moment. I think the Jennifer Jason Lee character, like her presence, like this, like super intense, like super, like impulsive presence, is so intoxicating. And I think in some ways, like a much better like match for the atmospherics of the movie and sort of just like the endless movement of like the city and just like that hot stickiness that you feel that. I kept wishing she was a protagonist of this movie. And that's how I feel whenever I see Jennifer Jason Lee in anything. Yeah, that's an issue. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, you know, always, always uh, undervalued. Never seen enough. Yeah, but I think like that also sort of like added to like that syrupy molasses feeling of like being stuck with Meg Ryan for me a little bit. Just because, like, she was so, like, passive a lot of the time. And so... It, yeah, que sera, sera. She's, like, she's going to have to fight the inertia, you know? I think, like, this is, like, a movie where, like, it feels to me a lot more, like, intellectually satisfying than, like, viscerally satisfying. At mm. least for me. Yeah, the intellectual satisfaction of uh, subway poetry. <laughs> Daniel and I have, like, completely turned on all of the poetry in Jane Campion's movies, unfortunately. And it's, like, a thing that she will never stop doing. Um, um, I think it's great. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. I think poetry is also undervalued. And I like it. I like the artifice of people stumbling into it in in the world. I think it makes sense for the character. But I think watching so many of her movies in such a short period of time and realizing that she, like, will not stop doing this um, has, I think, grated on us a little bit. But you like grading things, so. I I mean, I like it when you stick to your, like, you have a style and you fucking, like, go to the ends of the earth with it, you know? Yeah, well, I'm just glad that this movie didn't in the same way as the book, which is apparently her dying thinking of the subway poetry. Is it really? Yes. 
Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) So at least Campion fixed that. If my last thoughts as, like, a human being on Earth is Subway of Poetry, (laughs) like, just kill me all over again. Fingers crossed. Um, (laughs) It's going to be drops of Jupiter. She's just going to be, like, thinking Uh about train. Now she's back in the atmosphere. Yep. Uh, That'd be great. Um, While this, like, slow, uh, at times, uh, molasses-y movie was going on, I just, because of the vibe of New York City at that time, I felt like the much more manic, much more fun American Psycho was going down just, like, right down the street. Like, at the same time. Uh, Yeah. I just, like, that was the kind of energy I got from the grime of New York City. It was just a, a much different take on the murdering in New York City vibe. So, yeah, the, you know, the production design in this, I think, is just so accurate in terms of like Meg Ryan's apartment. It's just so satisfying, though, of like actually feeling like you are seeing parts of New York where, like, yeah, a teacher is not going to have a really great place. She's like, you know, like her cabinets are broken, like very obviously it's extremely small, you know, like things are cramped. Um, it, you can feel that things feel hot. It's, it's, I think, really evocative of, of that time. Um, even if you don't like the movie, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> this can be sometimes miserable, sometimes fantastic. And it encapsulates both of that, like pain and glory. So. I will definitely say it reminded me all over again why I hate being in New York and why I'm so glad I don't live there. Hey now, hey now. Um, <laughs> I was just going to say that, so you, I, you said the words pain and glory, which uh, bring me to Pedro Almodovar, of course. And I, the movie that I thought of while watching this, because of course it feels like everything has to be in conversation with our first season where we covered Almodovar, uh, was like the this is almost like the exact opposite of law of desire where it's like that movie is a like deep romanticization of the serial killer. Whereas this is so much more the opposite where it's like that one is this like gay steamy romance of like, Oh, this guy loves me enough to kill for me. Whereas here it's like, Oh fuck, this guy loves me enough to kill me. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, actually that brings us to like the topic that I wanted to talk about, which is I think this is such a really interesting like take on the erotic thriller because I I feel like if I think about sort of like the like big run of erotic thrillers of like the eighties and the nineties, so much of it is like this like titillation combined with like sexual puritanism, um, and how so much of it is like. Ooh, like, look at this, like, cool sex. Like, look at all of your favorite movie stars and, like, how, like, their bodies are on screen. But also, sex is bad and it will destroy your life, especially if it's, like, extramarital sex. Especially if there's, like, anything, like, remotely kinky going on. It just means that, like, the people who want to have uh, erotic, like, non-vanilla sex are, like, bad people. Mm-hmm. I feel like that was, like, so much, like, the... Uh, hypocrisy basically of like the erotic thriller like of that time and this feels so much like a commentary and sort of like a subversion of like the genre in that like first of all when we're talking about the piano we were talking about like all of these like different like sexual nuances like of like the different types of sex and I feel like this really like continues in that pattern where I feel like the very first thing that you see Mark Ruffalo do 
is like, I think like basically eat out like Meg Ryan's ass. And I remember thinking, oh, like before kissing even, like you're just gonna go like straight into ass play. No judgment, obviously. Uh, but it was like, I think what we would call in 2021, a choice. Mm-hmm. And I think so much of this movie also is about like, Mark Ruffalo being like, I am here to do like whatever it is that you want and uh except to hit you. Yeah. And like I can be whoever you want to be and you can t- and you can sort you sort of get the sense that like he's like both like a really generous lover and at the same time this guy who like completely keeps his like true self hidden from Franny and how she is like really attracted to that. Like, I really loved all of that. And I really love that she, like, both, like, basically, like, distrusted this guy, but then also was, like, attracted to a guy that she couldn't fully trust because, I don't know, that's how women are like sometimes. She likes the danger of it. And that's the thing. She's always been kind of a tourist or a voyeur. And at this point, she gets to be the person who's playing. Yeah, that like the voyeur from like the jump where she is in the basement of that uh bar watching the cop get the blowjob and she's like she lingers on that for so long because she is drawn into it. She like it this is a very anti-kink shamey movie but also just like I don't know it, this is such a horny movie but mm-hmm. so like scary in its horniness in a way. I mean, like, even, like, if we're talking about that blowjob scene, it's filmed so, like, sensually, and I feel like it's, I think it's, like, fairly rare for, to see, like, a woman on screen being turned on by, like, a blowjob, especially since in a, like, a very traditional sense, like, women are not the people being, like, the most pleasured by a blowjob. And so you get, like, this, like, sense, like, from the start that this movie is, like, going to go play with ideas about sex in, like, a way that, like, you don't uh, necessarily expect. Right. Well, and that, like, the idea of what women find sexually stimulating is possibly so unexplored on a personal individual level that, like, maybe you are really turned on by watching a guy get a blowjob but like you don't necessarily know that because like you're not really conditioned to even be as aware of like what you find sexually exciting as to what your partner finds sexually exciting which i think is pointed out like pretty specifically in the text where uh when jennifer jason lee's character says like i don't remember anything Mm -hmm. about like my sex partners except like how they like to have sex like that's yeah. how I remember them is not like how I like to have it, but how they like to have it. And so it's this whole movie is, seems to be tied up in like women trying to figure out what they find attractive or what they find sexually stimulating. Well, it's a, I mean, it's, it's definitely about like these power dynamics, obviously um, like the whole of it. Um, and so it's like not just sex, but there's something about like the power that is sexy and you know, who has like the that power final to scene, do what the final like sex scene where like she's like she's riding mark ruffalo meg ryan is like riding her him and he's like yeah just just do it like like take me kind of thing mm-hmm. yeah and that's it, so it's like it's it's much more about dominance and submission i would say than than 
you know, purely even just like sex or sexual pleasure, but, but those things. And the fact that she feels so disempowered in this very big, very kind of like loud city that, you know, where sometimes she can't even sleep because she, you know, is staying with her sister above a strip club and it just like won't stop. Like, okay, well, what if I am the person who like takes all of the power here in this situation? Um, the fact that she ends up wearing the guy's jacket in the end is not just plot contrivance, um, in terms of like, she'll have the gun at least because she's got his jacket, but the fact that like, she's kind of become her own cop like she's the detective she is this um she's the person with the power now yeah i think um sorry going back to like an earlier point even that scene with like her student and we will definitely talk about like the whiteness of her project <laughs> mm-hmm. of her like which he points out project. too yeah he's like <laughs> like she's like very clearly attracted to her black student who is like taller and like much more muscular and like just you can tell that, like, they're attracted to each other, even though, like, he has this, like, weird obsession with, like, trying to clear John Wayne Gacy's name. And just, like, the way that, like, so much of, like, her idea of, like, romance is inextricably tied up in these, like, ideas about, like, the possibility or of the sort of, like, inescapability of, like, the concept of sex um, outside of, like, violence, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, all of our ideas about, like, romance are wrapped up in violence, and all of our ideas about sex are wrapped up in violence, and that's just sort of, like, the reality that she lives in. I kept coming back to Sex and the City, and I will try to make this short, because, like, first of all, they were, like, concurrent. Like, I think Sex and the City, like, ran at the same time that this movie came out. Mm-hmm. But also... Um, so they were just sitting at the, like, next cafe table over? I mean, I think so. <laughs> While Kevin Bacon stared in, actually, it was like Charlotte and Samantha were just chatting to the side. <laughs> I think that they were probably in like a much nicer neighborhood than like a teacher would go to or a teacher would live in. But I think like the thing that I really loved about or the thing that I found really instructive about this comparison is that like, if I recall correctly, in, like, the six seasons or whatever of the show, they've, like, never once discussed sexual assault. And I found that really interesting because the idea that, like, you can be constantly humiliated by, like, dating, like, that's, like, a through line for the show. But, like, the fact that, like, they never discuss sexual assault, like, basically feels very, like, untrue to me. And that's, like, a candy-coated show, so, like, it doesn't have to get into sexual assault. But um, there's also a sort of, like, dishonesty to that. And I think that because this movie is, like, so entirely about, like, the possibility of sexual assault or even murder, like, right around the corner, um, it just, like, really emphasized that lack uh, on Sex and the City's part for me. And I'm not saying that this is, like, a particularly realistic thing, realistic uh, film either, obviously. Like, we're not operating in the mode of realism. But I think it does sort of, like, get at something about, like, dating. Mm -hmm. And I think that the other thing that I really like about this uh, vision of New York City is that because everyone is sort of, like, living so, in such, like, 
tight density with each other. Like the people that you least want to see are just like are always going to be in like the same neighborhood haunts that you are. And so there's this like inescapability of like your sexual past that just like adds to the suffocation of everything else about the city. And I was like, yeah, this is why I don't live in New York. <laughs> yeah, because Kevin Bacon might show up on your doorstep and uh, talk about killing his dog. That was like so deeply upsetting. And yet I was like, yeah, that is a person. That is the type of person I recognize. Every every bit of Kevin Bacon's character is just like when he shows up, it's like so real. Like is, you know, when he talks with her, like walking with his dog and and he's ugly ugly dog he's like can you watch the dog you know that kind of thing (laughs) and and she's like no and like the way that the way that she responds like i i love them as scene partners because she's responding in a way that's like both trying to be assertive but like please don't hurt me you know like and she's like in a public place and she's like making sure like people can like see and it's like there's a kind of exasperated sense to her where like she is trying to be as kind as possible despite the fact that he is clearly insane and like poses a a threat to her in in this sense um and and that to me feels really real of like especially like while he in the guy while he is in the guise of like a supposedly like what's the word i'm looking for He's a like, helper. He's he's yeah. like wearing scrubs. In the know? in the same way that like you assume a cop to be a helper, but it turns out he's not. Like it's that same mold of like a guy who is like given a societal like a gloss by society over like these assumptions of decency and kindness mm-hmm. and like all of that is just fake. Well, yeah. And like a gloss that's like, Oh, if I, if we were just saw those two having a conversation, we wouldn't have the thought of how creepy he was. Like if we saw it from afar, but like, as soon as you ha- have one word out of his mouth, you automatically know like, Oh, this is not, this is not the guy that we want to like. He's not good. Also Jane Campion makes it like, she basically just puts like this is the killer like on the screen whenever he appears <laughs> even though he's not because like at every turn it's like oh well obviously he's stalking her he even says when he's talking about killing his dog like i could decapitate it um and like how easy it would be like there are so many just that's why i said like this is like the red herring movie because like there are so many things that she's doing to get us to think it could be anybody which like adds to the terror of it could be anybody and so like it just there is always, even though this movie does maybe languish a little too much, there's still always that like fear in it, even if like it feels like it's lasting too long because you really don't know who the killer is at the, the first time through. Like watching it, I had no idea where it was going. And I like, because I wasn't paying attention to just the dialogue, I was like watching everything as you like said, April, uh, like just looking at all the visual stuff and trying to put it all together. I like, couldn't figure out who was the killer and so was constantly on edge even when i felt a little bored 
I mean, it, 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 it really kind of mimics what it's like to be a single woman in the city, though. I'm just yep. like, really, <laughs> really feeling like it's, it's, it's that, that idea that like when you walk down the street, like any of them could kill me. <laughs> like, so just assuming, assuming that someone might and just like accepting that danger. Cause you have to accept that danger to kind of w- walk throughout the world. You know, I have to accept that danger every time I get on the train and you know, like that's, that's just part of it. And I, I like, I like the way that Meg Ryan plays this character in that she also accepts it, that she has to accept a certain amount of fear and danger because otherwise you are going to be like stuck in your house. You're not going to leave, but like you have to overlook some of these, these things and to be kind of deluded in a sense to think that you are safe enough to go out. So even after she gets mugged and, and, you know, the guy has her ID, knows where she lives. She's just like, yeah, well, you know, this is what happens. I guess I'm going to stay with my sister. And it's like, you know, you have to keep living. You can't just be afraid all the time. Yeah, I think that's like, for me, like the strongest part of the movie, just like the paranoia of like dwelling on that state of existence and then yet at the same time, like, having to, like, put that paranoia, like, off to the back of your mind. You mentioned Top of the Lake, and, like, I think, like, this movie felt very much to me like a kind of, like, prelude or maybe, like, a first draft or something of Top of the Lake. Yeah. Where so much about it is just sort of, like, this idea that, like, you have no idea, like, which of the many, many, many terrorizing men, like, in your vicinity... Is the person who is like doing god awful things, and I, I guess like that has like a much more like conventional structure with like the female detective, blah blah blah. Yeah. But like on the other hand, it like really channels that same feeling of just like, like what the yeah. fuck is this world, and like why am I putting myself through this? And yet at the same time, like you just have to. And was- because you're like trapped in heterosexuality. Yikes. Yeah. Did you see the did, there was a like a viral TikTok that going around of like a woman who was talking about like her horrible internet date and how she like went to the guy's house. There's just like red flags throughout the entire thing. She's like, she went to the guy's house because the guy was just like, oh, we can go together instead of meeting there. She's like, sure, fine. And then eventually, like, it just happens that like they go through a Taco Bell drive through and he orders a hundred tacos that she then has to pay for. And then they go back to like his house and start eating the tacos. And then his dad is there and, <laughs> and says like, do you want to go and see my studio? And the TikTok, you know, in her story, she was like, I got my tacos and left. But in my head, like, I I was just like, I assumed that she would say, yeah, of course. And that was the, the thing where, like, I, I'm a person who accepts a certain amount of danger and, like, keeps saying yes, despite the fact that um, there are all these warning signs that someone might want to kill you. But I was like, oh, yeah, I would absolutely do that. Because I've definitely done that in my own life, where I'm just like, some stranger says, you know, uh do you want to come and see these photographs that I have in this studio? And you're like, sure. And that's how you end up becoming an Indiana mole woman. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, that's, that's something that is represented in this film is just like, yeah, like people are dying. They found like the remains in her garden and she's just like, well, (laughs) 
That's I'm New gonna York. I'm going to go on a date. <laughs> That's New York. <laughs> it really oh is New York, though. <laughs> oh, God. Um, I want to talk about, like, one scene that really made an impression on me, and I feel like probably made an impression on you guys. It's when um, Franny discovers her dead sister in her dead sister's bathroom, and then she finds that, like, her sister ha- has been beheaded, and the head is in a plastic bag, and she just, like, cradles the head like, in the plastic bag, like, in her lap, like, against her chest, and cries, and just, like, it's such a, is the right word beautiful? Like, it's so, like, tender and, like, disgusting at the same time, and that What's was, What's like, in the bag? <laughs> it's, like, it's see-through. We know. <laughs> and so, like, that scene just, like, leapt out at me, and I thought, like, I love Jane Campion, and also this scene is so fucking disgusting. It was a weirdly intimate and beautiful scene, though, in yeah. its own way. Like, yeah, it was creepy, but who knows, like, if you found your sibling's disembodied head in a bag, would you have to hug it as you realized they were dead? Great question. Um, I don't know if I love my sibling enough to do that. <laughs> Sorry, Paul. <laughs> but i i love the i love the i mean that's what campion does so well is she makes really kind of horrific things pretty beautiful in her work um and and i i just really like genevieve kind of appreciate lemon that there's just there's so much about her work that where you expect a character a character to do one thing and instead she does like the exact surprising thing that you would not expect and that's just kind of so rare when it comes to anyone who's worked in or around Hollywood. And and so that scene, I think, is is really gorgeous. It's really beautiful. And it's also, again, like the production design is just like, it's so tactile in that moment. There's just so, there's so much like kind of lushness to it. Starting from like that fog of steam coming from out of the bathroom and you can tell that she's about to like enter this otherworldly place. Mm -hmm. Of, like, discovering, like, obviously her dead sister's body, but yeah. Yeah. I I just, I just really appreciate the, the willingness and desire to want to do the thing that you shouldn't do. (laughs) I mean, like, I think, like, another really good example of that is, like, right after she is mugged, Mark Ruffalo's character comes to Franny's house, and the way that, like, they initiate sex is by, like, Malloy going behind her and basically like recreating the mugging Mm -hmm. and like by this point you get the sense that like he also might be like a vicious killer um and he like really like clings to this like unknowability when it comes to her because we really never know like if anything that he says about his own life is true or not mm-hmm. because at every turn he's lying to her and he she he's like well my my ex-wife well i mean my wife we're separated but <laughs> and everything is just like actually just a little bit of a lie enough to like is anything true you're right yeah but then there's this like weird like tenderness and like sensuality that comes with like him recreating her mugging and yeah like i that was like another uh, that was like another scene where like you have this like ugh, 
I don't know, like this like combination of like tenderness and like creepiness and it just like worked really beautifully. Yeah. I, I I already mentioned Verhoeven earlier, but I absolutely feel like if I asked Verhoeven about this movie, he'd be like, great film. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like talking about like, like sex, violence, power, these things, and sometimes almost like in a caricatured way for him, but like, th- like this is, you know, these are the few directors who are willing to go into those places because they are so thorny like these these issues um i also think the i mentioned this earlier but um the choice to do the color palette so pink is i think such a great thing going against the grain of all of these psychological thrillers um uh, or any detective story the like the entirety is like a pink palette um, yeah, where are all the blues? Where are the cool, like creepy colors? It's yeah, it's wild, and and that's just that's just not something that you see in that genre. And I think visually, like a lot of people were not prepared for the fact that like there was going to be so much fucking pink, like it's all over the place. Um, and it's like you know, like I think the easiest thing is just to go like full on red and to like get into that kind of like monochromatic, like really kind of bold color choice because it's like okay, red. Sure, that's murder, all these things, but it's pink, like throughout. There's some, there's some times where there's like a modulation, you know, but it, it's wildly, and that's my favorite color. So I'm, I'm reminded of, I think, my favorite outfit of the film, which is when, uh, Franny wears her sit, borrows her sister's dress, and it's like this, like, short white and pink, like, floral dress that's like very, it's like, like white with like a style. cherry pattern or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's got like stripes on the shoulders. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't fit her at all in like style, but it also like does. I don't know. I loved it. I, I yeah. just am that dress will stick with me for a while. There's a lot of choices that were made in this movie. That's the thing that you can never fault Campion for is just like, you know, because so much of being a director is you're just making choices, one choice after another after another. And like she's making choices here and they are bold. And you can't say that she was, like, asleep at the wheel, you know? This is what she wanted to do. Speaking of choices, do you guys think that we were supposed to find um, Franny's project of documenting black slang, like, embarrassing? Or do you think that's just, like, 2003? I think it's just 2003 because this is before, like, even Freedom Writers came out. (laughs) Shut up. I think it's mostly 2003, even though I think Campion was a little bit aware of it. Because like we mentioned earlier, um, Cornelius is allowed to have a voice of, of like, this seems weird. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you're being a tourist into like the way that I speak and you're like studying me like I'm like a zoo animal or something. Like, w- what is your deal? Um, and how he's like, I should get paid for this. Yeah. And he's right. <laughs> It's like, yeah, you really should. The guy who worships John Wayne Gacy is correct. Yes. I also think it's interesting, like, I I think that comes up again when, like, it's not as explicit, but when Meg Ryan, as Ingu laughed at yesterday while you were watching, says the word poppy, a word that she's probably never said before. um, (laughs) And so, like, yeah, just putting those types of things in her mouth as well is just kind of, like, very jarring, but in a way that doesn't seem unaware. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I do think that, like, a part of it is just her in this, like, role of, like, the observer and the absorber. 
like the way that she is constantly taking in things from around her, um, especially with like the stupid poetry emotion stuff. Just as like someone, just this person who is like really trying to like be open to the city, right? Like that's why she's constantly writing things down in her notebook. That's why she's observing the slang around her that she doesn't understand. And part of like being that open is like, as we come back to like our main theme, like part of accepting all like the possibility of danger. But she's going to be someone who is going to, she's, she is just like a person who like is by nature receptive because that is the way that she lives her life for better or worse. Yeah, but for all that she's like an observer taking in everything around her, she's still not able to solve the crime that we've been that she's been given all the clues. To I solve, didn't say basically. she was a good observer. <laughs> right. But I, I don't mean that as a critical thing either. I just mean that like, that is part of like, yeah, even even if you are, are able to see everything, you're not able to figure it out until after the fact. Most, she's a most good observer. Time. She's not the best processor, maybe. Right. I I did have one thought while watching this, which is that if this if this movie came out in 2017, then instead of seeing subway poetry, she would have seen um, one of those subway ads for uh, the snowman where it said, Mr. Police, you could have saved her. I gave you all the clues. I gave you all the clues. Yeah. Yeah. That, that would have been a thing she saw. Did, I'm like, glad you yeah. mentioned that because this doesn't have to go in the pod, but like. I feel like April and I literally sent each other like two years worth of Mr. Snowman memes. <laughs> <laughs> I still think about them. I still think about <laughs> the snowman shit. Like, it's too good. Um, I mean, imagine Jane Campion doing the snowman. She gave us all the clues. Yeah. Um, I love it. I would love yeah. it. Give her a hairy hole, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> I feel like I mean, she did. <laughs> She's had a oh, few of yeah, those in okay. her movies already, yeah. <laughs> um, I do think that, like, all of the clues that she gives us, though, is, like, they all seem so well thought out from a, like, written perspective of, like, I'm going to put all of these different, like, clues, and as I've said over and over again, like, red herrings just woven into this thing. And, like, watching it a second time, it was really cool to see that framework in a way like to see the pieces as you go like when you hear her hear early in the film like oh it takes at least three women to die for it to be an interesting story and then like you realize afterward like oh three women died in this movie and like those types of things that uh are just like small little throwaways but actually when you go back and watch it again you're like oh okay i think it was very well constructed well that's i mean there's a certain meta-ness to this a knowingness but you know to your point earlier daniel you were talking about sometimes it feels like jane campion doing a lifetime movie and i'm not going to disagree with that uh because but the thing is that it's like what if a lifetime movie were artistically done and like i actually enjoy those stories and i think they're great but like i've worked on the set of a lifetime movie and you know they're moving very quickly they don't have a lot of time for art or for like performance or any of these things if you get any of that 
out of those movies, then like, good, you know, good job, because they're not going to give you those tools. But then Campion, you know, makes a more complex version of this. And it's like, it to me, it still feels satisf- satisfying in that way, because you still get that ending that I want, I still get the, the, the things that I like, and, um, you know, almost, and of course, like, let's try to define it a camp, if you will, uh, in a sense. Um, or just, you know, a knowingness or a kind of, um, sleight of hand cheesiness that like in Campion's hands for me feels, you know, really, really intellectual and artistic. <laughs> I mean, I want to sort of like push back against like the lifetiminess a little bit. Uh, because I feel like when people refer to lifetime movies, they're basically talking about movies about women in danger. Mm-hmm. And that is sort of like a way of basically dismissing what is often like a story written and directed by women about like the perils that women face. And I feel like a lot of that uh, dismissal has to do with the fact that like men who are like by and large the tastemakers in our society do not want to take those concerns seriously and so it gets relegated to like oh that's like lifetime material and i do feel like in the last like 10 or so years we have been getting this uh revision and like what counts as prestige and i think that I don't know, if you're looking at something like, for example, the first season of Big Little Lies, or if you're looking at something like, I don't know, Jane Campion's entire oeuvre, I think, like, we are in a period now where we are able to take the concept of, like, women constantly being in danger as, like, a serious concept and as a subject for serious art much more than we used to be. Right, like, if it had come out 20 years ago, A Simple Favor would have been a Lifetime movie. Well, I mean, that would be true because it's directed by a man, and most Lifetime movies are written and directed by men. I thought they were changing that. They are now, but historically, I mean, since that network has been around, women weren't writing and directing any of that stuff for, hmm. um, uh, until the past 10 years. Okay. So the past decade is when they were like, oh, I guess we should give women more of a shot. But uh, men predominantly wrote and directed all of those films. Okay. Um, Burning Bed, all the way back to Burning Bed, all of those movies. It's, mm. it's, it's, um, we, we don't, I think that the problem is we don't know what that story is or what a Lifetime movie is because, or, or how Lifetime changed the way that we see women's stories because women were never telling them from the beginning. So I, it's hard to classify like they might have is- been more Jane Campion style like they might have been a number of in the cut style films if it were women's telling these stories. Yeah, we but the thing is we don't really I don't really know. I mean, and we also I mean there was a knowingness of what Lifetime was doing when they were buying these scripts. There was a kind of nihilism to them. Like when you, when you look back at like who was buying and, and uh, making uh, movies back then, there was a nihilism of um, just thinking that women would like anything that had this stuff. And, and so they just, they would hire a bunch of like the same guys over and over to do this and like just kind of cranking them out. So there was no thought to them. There's, you know, like the few that stand out are the ones that, you know, obviously like the burning bread, the burning bed, like I mentioned, but, um, you know, it, there was, there was already an infusion of camp and there was an unseriousness about violence, 
um, and danger for women. Except for, and again, this is the reason why the movie was so big, Burning Bed was like huge. And even then there's like a, a certain kind of like not understanding exactly how to get the tone right uh, the whole time, but it takes that violence seriously in, in a way that um, really kind of transformed a lot of stuff. But then they dropped it and then it was just camp, 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 which I love. But um, it just, it really shaped what we thought women's entertainment was for so long that I don't know if we know what it is. Well, and it makes me wonder also then since things have shifted in the last 10 years or so, like if In the Cut came out now, would people like it more? I think people like it now more than they did before because I've definitely, ever since I wrote that defense of it in the Rotten Tomatoes book, I've seen a lot of people who are finding it uh, now on Criterion because it's on the Criterion channel um, for the neo-noirs. And they're starting to see it as more of a neo-noir than a psychological or erotic thriller. So they're, huh. it's, it's changing genre in a sense. Cause you know, genres go in and out of fashion. And I feel like in, in this way, if you're looking at it, um, of a tradition of neo-noirs, it, it actually kind of fits. Um, it makes a lot, actually, like putting it in the neo-noir part of my head makes it like, feel better for me, like in terms of like liking it as a movie. Uh, when I'm thinking of it as this psychosexual thriller, it kind of, it doesn't do it for me. But thinking about it in that neo-noir category, I'm definitely much more interested in considering it in that vein. But isn't that also just like a function of certain genres being endowed with like more prestige than yep. others and therefore like... And also more different expectations. Sure. I think it's fun as an erotic thriller because I feel like it has so much uh, going for it in terms of like commenting on the erotic thrillers like of the past and just like how I, I, I think of like if erotic thrillers, as I previously discussed, was sort of predicated on a kind of like hypocrisy, mm-hmm. this is sort of talking about like the contradiction of like female heterosexual desire where you want sex and you want love and yet at the same time you have to constantly contend with like danger from men right and so like it spins like the contradictions built into the erotic thriller like into a more feminist critique and so i think it does like really interesting stuff with the erotic thriller and so I think it's fine to like it as an erotic thriller, um, and I'm probably saying that because I like it as an erotic thriller, but that's my story. I gotta say, this discussion has made me like the movie more than I did having just watched it on my own. I think that y'all really helped me understand why it's better than I thought it was. Oh, that was my only goal today, was just to convince <laughs> you. Like I, you. I, you know, I always wanted to be a lawyer, and... <laughs> Now I'm arguing on behalf of In the Cut. <laughs> well, I appreciate that you have convinced me, a man, that a work by a woman is good. <laughs> is that what we're here for? <laughs> Always. All right. Well, that's the end of our discussion of In the Cut. But now it's time for some rankings. I mean, I don't. I don't like ranking. If you don't want to participate, that's totally fine. 
Okay, I don't. I, <laughs> I'm like, it's always my least favorite part of film criticism was having to rank things because, like, I'm looking at this and I'm like, how do I rank Angel at my table and Sweetie? Like, well, those <laughs> go at the bottom, of course. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> Dave, I really didn't uh, like Sweetie or Angel at my table. Oh my god, Sweetie was like pulling teeth. I, like I said, and the they shoot horses, don't they, of of film lovers. Like, I, you know, I I thought it was hilarious. I was like, I can't wait. And then, like, when she does die, I'm just like, oh my god. I feel awful now. And the whole time I was cheering for it, and I felt bad. And it's just like, it's just such a... She got you. It's a beautiful film. I think that rankings are the worst worst type of film criticism out there. And yet we do it on our show, apparently. And yet we do it because I think it, it injects like a nice bit of acidity and just like judgment. I will go first. I think I'm going to do the piano first. Holy Smoke, Bright Star, Indicut. An angel at my table and sweetie. I feel like that's like very justifiable. Yeah, but the correct answer is holy smoke first. <laughs> followed by the piano and then bright star. And then, um, you know, I think I liked angel at my t- table better than the cut. So angel at my table in the cut and then sweetie. You're both wrong. <laughs> What's the correct ranking? There is none. They're all perfect. <laughs> well then we're not wrong we're both right <laughs> hilarious to call sweetie and an angel at my table perfect but are you fucking serious janet frame a biopic of janet frame that is like gorgeous and impressionistic Who? and <laughs> i know we just met but i hate you. <laughs> that's my role on this podcast that's the energy we're going for every episode. So I've succeeded today. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and hating Daniel April. Well, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> I got I got Daniel to like in the cut a little bit more than Sweetie, so I guess that's <laughs> something. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. And that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. We're always happy to have you with us. If you'd like to contact us, we're at allaboutfilmpod at gmail.com. And we'll be back with you next week talking about the first season of Top of the Lake. should wrap up my stomach ache that i have been having on and off for like 20 hours is threatening to return um april how much of jane that's a great transition for the pod shut the fuck up (laughs)